As Karen comes to read the scripture this morning, uh, in searching throughout scriptures and particularly through my life, uh, this scripture particularly stands out for me as defining, and defining on so many levels. Um, this plus a scripture that you'll hear uh, in, in the message time. David, I'm going to need that. Um, so um, as Karen reads, see how this might relate to your life. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with the scripture, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake. So that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I really do believe that if, particularly in ministry, if you ask someone to do something, that you should be willing to do it yourself as well. And last week we heard four really remarkable kind of witnesses about about some things and you know I, I keep looking over at Jason thinking if I asked this this young man to share parts of his story that I should be willing to do the same don't you think yeah and so I thank Jason and I thank Lee and Melinda and Joe who who spent some time last week but then as I said earlier I, I think we also spend one Sunday doing something that is absolutely appropriate, and that is to remember those who have gone before us, those who are now among the great cloud of witnesses, who, who have just either guided or supported or encouraged or, or challenged or in so many things, you know, those folks that we celebrate, lives that we celebrate. I think of Ruth right now. You're sitting here and I thought, I just man, I just think of so many of us that have done that. And so I thought this was a time to share a more somewhat detailed version of my story. Now, the other thing is you have a part in this, and so what I encourage you to do is take your hymnal out, 
and turn to, I think it's 378. It is Amazing Grace. And after each section of me sharing this, I'm asking us to sing, you know, one verse. And so we'll start with one and then go to two and then three and then four uh, of this beautiful song. And you'll see why in just a moment, why this song means so much to me. I'm going to read my sermon this morning, because uh, if I don't, it, other things may happen, and I don't want that. And by the way, this is what I'm most comfortable in. I, I, was, I was honored to be welcomed into the Jeans Club, uh, not Jeans, but, but Jeans Club by the praise team this morning, because I don't often wear jeans, and yet it, this is really, this is more me than anything that I usually wear, so I just wanted to explain that. So here we go. Just before my 20th birthday, having very little in the way of faith and believing in my own invincibility, I skied like I did everything else, with total abandon, believing that I was not only invincible, but that I had to continually prove my worth by doing more than anyone else. I was on a full-ride vocal performance scholarship at the University of Puget Sound and still remember the mentor Uh, then, who tried to get me to focus an impossible task for this young 18 or 19-year-old. His name was Michael Devaney. He later became the lead bass at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. I didn't listen. And even in the midst of that, left UPS believing it was just too hard, and journeyed back back to Spokane and uh, got in a scholarship at Whitworth. Uh, then college, now university, immediately got into the music program, two weeks later left for Hawaii within the first two weeks on campus for the choir tour, and I I got to be a soloist. (laughs) But while in Hawaii, my first arrest came while scaling Diamond Head. It was a military base, and they didn't take kindly to kids climbing under the fence that said, warning, keep out. Um a place that was obviously off-limits. But then two months later, in March, on March 4th, I ended up in the hospital, paralyzed on my left side after breaking my neck in a ski accident. Whitworth was wonderful once I got out of the hospital, but then they asked me to not return until I grew up. And that is a direct quote from the letter from the Dean of Students. Failure, my greatest fear come to fruition. Over time and through a really miraculous event, I regained the feeling in my body, but was weak, atrophied, out of school, didn't want to live at home, sound familiar, and finally found a job that placed me in a responsible role with an electronics company in Olympia. I looked at this owner who was very involved in the day-to-day operations as my boss as a rigid, angry, boundary-keeping man, and having found my first apartment, began an even greater spiral into the darkness. It all culminated when, having not enough money for rent, I took the deposit from the company, the deposit entrusted to me by this same man. I stole the cash to pay my rent and burned the checks. I lied about losing the deposit, then I lied about making the deposit, I blamed the bank, and then it got worse. It often does when lies spiral out of control, or when lies happen at all. It turns out some of the burned checks 
were to the IRS, and suddenly the FBI was involved. Well, to make a long story short, I had to admit it to my parents, and I to this day still see my dad as I shared this with him, crumbling to the ground, sobbing uncontrollably, and asking the question over and over and over again, now what? Now what do we do? I'll never get that image out of my head. I walked away from him while he was on the floor. I went back to my apartment knowing that I was going to commit suicide. But God was there, and I heard a still small voice, left my apartment, went back home, talked again with my parents, who contacted an attorney who was an attorney in Olympia First United Methodist, who shared that he knew the owner, that I needed to go and admit my mistake to him. The owner's name was Jack Weeks. In Jack's living room, and again, It's as though it was yesterday. I can see every detail of this living room. Very 70s, covered with wood, walls covered with wood, fire in the fireplace. And as I walked in, Jack stood, and I couldn't help but notice that he had tears streaming down his face. He asked us to sit down, and immediately he apologized to me. He apologized to me. I will never understand that, although it becomes clear over my life. He asked my forgiveness for being too hard, of having too little compassion, and placing too much responsibility on my shoulders. He then shared his story with me. He said he saw himself in me, saw me as a son, and pushed me as if I were his son. He again asked my forgiveness. It took time, more time than it should have, but then I asked his. I paid back the money and found a new beginning. And again, to this day, I I, I just didn't understand how in the world Jack could have done this. Ask my forgiveness. He talked about the fact that he was a Christian. And his mandate as a follower of Jesus, was to do what he did. I would learn later how important that would be, but God sent Jack to share his story to a young, brash, foolish, idiotic kid. God took a really bad situation and made it good through Jack. And it's why now, as I think of other scriptures that I love, Romans 8.28 continues to come to mind. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Forgiveness is a powerful thing, and that event became the first of many more to come of helping me understand the power of grace, of becoming humble and honest and allowing oneself to be mentored, taught, loved, and even forgiven. And realize the power of someone sharing their story, their story about their relationship with Christ It very literally saved my life on so many levels, but God wasn't done. Let's sing the first verse of Amazing Grace.
So friends, how do you rebuild after something like that? I had no idea what to do, but I remember a friend who seemed to have an answer. His name was Tim Bigelow. Tim was a hero to me. Older than I was, was on dialysis at least five days a week. He spent hours in that chair, but didn't allow that kidney disease to hamper his life. He was the youth director at Olympia First, the church where my dad was serving. He tried to help me very patiently to understand that we are often healed as we provide healing to others, to give ourselves to others, to be ourselves with others, and to be courageous as we share Christ with others, including our struggles. Well, I wasn't ready to hear it. So then came another angel. This time he was a builder who saw building something physical as an additional answer for healing. And as we built my first hand-hewn log cabin, just the two of us using only our hands and hand tools, no power tools, Mike shared his story, his struggles, and his faith. He said he saw himself in me. My God, this was a man who loved Christ. It permeated everything he did. And through blood and sweat and tears, we built together. And then we walked in the woods together as he taught me how to recognize the trees and the diseases and the wonderment in the backcountry and in the forests. My healing continued, but only because these two men, Tim and Mike, both were strong men of faith, both willing to share who they were with this struggling, angry, insecure, immature young man. And each shared with patience and with love and grace. They shared what they saw in me in ways no one had ever shared before, both the good and the bad, and forced me to see myself, not through my own eyes of insecurity, but through the eyes of a God who loved me no matter what or who or how I was. Tim introduced me to youth ministry. Mike introduced me to the real miracles and comfort of the forest of being meticulous as a craftsman, of taking time with patience, working with the wood rather than against it. The cabin still stands on the shores of Bud Inlet in Olympia. Both of these men are now gone, and I will celebrate them next week, but their legacy lives in those, including me, whose lives they touched. But it wasn't until the next angel stepped in, Larry Eddings, that I truly asked Christ into my life, And it was a bizarre circumstance where he called me, said God had placed me on his heart, asked me to come to Silverdale, sent me and brought me into a small chapel at Silverdale United Methodist Church and then prayed over me. And we were together for hours. There was that much that needed to be released. And then he asked if I would want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I said yes. And he laid hands on me. And that prayer changed my life. Changed my life. I felt the release and then the infilling and felt very much like what you've heard described before. I felt like a newborn baby. And was ready to step back into the world. Amazing Grace is the perfect song for all of this. So let's sing the second verse at this point.
You know, I know I spend a fair amount of time pulling out the White House card and talking about my time and my life in Washington, D.C. But maybe now you begin to understand that when it comes to children and youth at risk, I could have been the poster child for all of that. Yep, grew up in the church, hadn't made a commitment to Christ until that day with Larry, was a middle child in a family that moved a lot every year and a half before the age of six, and then every three and a half years after that. I never really learned how to connect with relationships. I lived with an abusive older brother, and I will tell you now, understanding kind of the psychological elements of that, it's why I continue to struggle with weight, because it's fearful for me to be too skinny because of that time with my brother. I want to be powerful, physically, and that too comes out of insecurity. I live with a mom who was often sick, a father who was never home, and the needs and insecurities you've already heard about were healing, but they were still deeply embedded in my heart, in my mind. But what changed some of that beyond my commitment to Christ was the discovery of transformation in others. Here was this kid, now a young man with no formal college education, some business experiences, not all of which were good, searching for what he wanted to be when he grew up, grew up yet struggled to find a place in the world. The move to Cupertino, California, the Silicon Valley in the mid-80s was the beginning of a change. I think partly because of the way I was raised and because of how I saw myself, I was somehow able to see the struggles in things around me, but particularly in others, in the lives of others, and particularly in the lives of kids. Being a youth director on one hand was a gift, but I will tell you, being a youth director comes with its own sets of really tough agenda. You've never done enough, it's never enough, and you continually have a church telling you how inadequate you are. That was what happened at Good Samaritan. <laughs> I didn't need to be reminded constantly of the struggles that I saw in myself, but I would notice other kids who were struggling I noticed the community's response, and it was to often turn a blind eye. I noticed that there were certain things that contributed to the negativity these kids saw around them. And I wanted to help them the way Jack and Tim and Mike and Larry had helped me. It was overwhelming, but so was the need to respond with love and faith and hope. I, I was still insecure but within those insecurities believed that something had to change. Obviously, so did God. People began to be literally placed in my path from the schools, from businesses, from law enforcement to government, and even kids around that area of three counties and folks from the research community, people some lowly youth director should never have had access to. And I can now look back and clearly see God's hand in all of it. Those days allowed something to happen that would, settle, that would set in motion a future I certainly never thought possible. More and more and more I was placed in positions of responsibilities, even greater than those deposits that never got to the bank when I was younger. But I had no reason to everything that was happening around to be placed in those situations. None. I remember, very humbly, being overwhelmed sitting across the desk from the Attorney General of the State of California. 
and trying to figure out why in the world I was in that office. I remember feeling those insecurities when teaching rooms full of teachers like Kate Ingalls, sitting with politicians like Bill Clinton, or talking with groups of parents. But without going into a lot of other detail, the point of the part of this is to say that even then God knew who I was, what I was dealing with, and saw things in me that I certainly didn't see in myself. And so placed people there, people like Dr. Albira Stern, who at that time was arguably the most respected person in the field of drug abuse and drug abuse prevention in the land. Again, like the other stories, I can remember vividly sitting uh, over dinner. I was staying at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. We went out to dinner that night. We had shared 10 days together traveling the whole state of Illinois, talking about what places kids at risk and what the state and the cities and the communities and the schools could do to reduce risk in kids. Well, at dinner that night, she slid an envelope across the table, and I opened it up, and there tied to all of the research, some of you have seen the research, were scripture verses that tied into the research we were trying to share. She then shared parts of her story with me of struggling to be a Christian in the midst of government work, particularly in Chicago, one of the hardest political scenes in the country, if not the world. But she said that she saw something in me that made her spend two straight nights putting this scripturally focused response together. And what I didn't realize was that there was another page that I had missed that I'll talk about in just a second. Then there was Dr. Peter Schmidt. We traveled together for probably two years. He was the Undersurgeon General for the United States. And after coming back from a speaking engagement in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, as we stood together at the front desk getting ready to check in, he let me know that he was a Christian. I don't know why it was there. Something was speaking to him because then he pulled me aside. He sat me down in one of those lobby chairs and he looked me in the eye and he said, Brad, you know you're called to ministry, right? I was shocked. It was a first. And I said, no. No. You're kidding, right? He wasn't kidding. Peter is also one who has gone before. He died of cancer a number of years ago. Friends, there were a lot of tough times on the road. Those of you who travel a lot understand what I'm talking about. Many of them because I didn't have a strong enough faith even yet to trust that I belonged there. I mean, why me? How could I possibly deserve to be traveling with these folks, all PhDs, and me, this uneducated guy with such small minute experiences compared to those with whom I traveled. I admit to you that there was never a day that went by that that question didn't plague me. Why would God choose such an insecure person like me to be the carrier of such vital information? That's when I looked again at Alvira's other page. This one was directed at me, not just at the research. She retold the story of Joseph, the youngest of the brothers chosen to heal his family. All of these from the Old Testament. There was the story of David utilizing what he had to slay a giant. And she talked about the giant in me that I needed to slay with God's help. There was the story of Samuel. And Gene, I just kept thinking of you as I was writing this. I know this is one of your favorite scriptures. Samuel responding with, here I am, send me. And my favorite and still is my favorite today, 
is the story of Gideon. Gideon was the smallest, the least, the most lost of all of the people of any of these stories, and yet who trusted God but questioned God all the way along the way, but as a result was able to be victorious. God seems often to choose the least among us to share important things. I absolutely believe that I am certainly, most certainly, the least among us in this place. It truly is how I see myself. All you need to do is ask Dorothy this question. But I'm here to share that it's when we have the courage to share our stories and share it with others, that's what changes lives. If we but open ourselves up to these kinds of, of, to be these kinds of vessels, as cracked as we may be, as fragile as we may be, that's when lives can change because so often people see themselves in the stories that we share. And I will tell you what happened between services today. So have you shared your story? Have you had the courage to step out and do any of this? Because God is placing people in your path who need to hear your story. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. So consider that as we sing the third verse of Amazing Grace. Then came the cocaine-addicted baby in an incident. I don't know what else to call it. Sitting at Howard University Hospital in the cocaine-addicted baby ward and holding one of these babies, surrounded by bishops and politicians, all occurring in Washington, D.C., God chose the absolute least among creation, this baby, to affirm a call to ministry. Because if anyone needs the church, this baby needs the church. As does this baby's family. As does everyone who helped create that situation. And it was out of that, holding a baby that will never be healthy and receiving a call of God, that it suddenly became overwhelming. But I remember as I talked to Cal McConnell, who was the bishop here at that point, and we talked through that whole experience, I said to him, I don't want to be my dad. I don't want to be in ministry. I don't want to deal with all the stuff I knew my dad had dealt with and how I had seen it being dealt with in every church in which he served and every church that I had been a part of. So I realized there was an out to this call. I didn't have an education. I hadn't really gone to school. I did not have a degree. Therefore, I couldn't be a pastor. Well, when God has a plan, God will create a way. 
God did create that way, and this uneducated, insecure, traveling talker was set on a path that leads me to be here today. I recognize that I shouldn't have had an opportunity for ministry. I recognize that I shouldn't have had an opportunity for a graduate degree without a bachelor's degree. I shouldn't have been able, we shouldn't have been able to live in Southern California serving a tiny little church and yet be able to afford not only to live there, but to be able to go to graduate school there. I certainly shouldn't have had the opportunity to be in a church like Santa Monica First and certainly shouldn't have had the opportunity to be in one of the most remarkable places I have ever seen, Aldersgate United Methodist Church. But there I was, and here I am. There were, and now it's just one more part of this miraculous story. Let me finish that piece. It was at seminary in my 40s, in my 40s, that I realized I had a brain. It was there that I realized a love of teaching, a love of studying, of being that sponge of learning, and knew that I had wasted decades of not taking in and would never stop trying to learn more and more and more, and it is such a real part of who I am today. I realized I could write thanks to the brutal, brutal writing instructor at Claremont School of Theology who was, by the way, a Greek Orthodox priest. We became good friends. I realized that even on a seminary campus where I had never, ever in my life written a thesis paper before, that God was still there and provided all of the opportunities necessary to become what God needed. And I very humbly say it again to you, I missed the top spot in my graduating class by two one-hundredths of a percentage point. I am forever deeply humbled by that because I know it wasn't me. It was all of those who surrounded and unlocked something in me that I still feel today, that longing to learn more. I want to thank all of those along what was a precarious path who shared their stories as a part of my life and shared them with patience, with courage, with accountability, all of which to try and help me understand that I was a child, a cracked pot of God, and that I had a place in the world. Let's sing the fourth verse. So what does any of this have to do with us? Well, over the past five and a half years, in my own insecure way, I've sought to implore you to share your stories. I've sought to share, to motivate, to encourage, to shake up, to guilt, to empower, to criticize, to coach, to do anything in my power to get us beyond our doors, to share what Christ has done in each of us and to share it in personal ways. 
and then to invite others to come to this place, this place that we call Aldersgate. And remember, no one knows what that name means. But our name says it all. It says it all. This is a place where hearts are strangely warmed and invited to become more than they ever thought possible. I look around here and I see so many heroes, so many like Jack Weeks and Mike Bigley and Tim Bigelow, Peter Schmidt and Elvira Stern, those folks who were guides in my life, and so many others that I haven't had time to mention. I look at what Jen has done miraculously with the youth group and the children. I look at Dorothy and what she is doing with the preschool. I look at, Lavona, I thought of you in the midst of this, and I know you hate it when I lift you up in worship. But I look at what you have done for young women and Daryl in this area and what you continue to do with, with Habitat and so many other organizations. And I look around and I could name Sophia Way and Crossroads and so many other places where we serve. But here's my hope, friends, that as we serve in those places that we share Christ with them, not just with our hands, but we share the stories of Christ as Christ has entered into our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. I look at what so many of our women have done to help young girls across the world, and girls will probably never have an opportunity to meet. There are those who spent four and five and six and eight and ten hours to get ready for Friday night, two nights ago, to serve the 200 moms and dads and grandparents and children who came through the church for the fall festival and who continually said, don't we need to donate something? And we were able to say, no. This is our gift to you. There are endless numbers of you who spend time at a wide array of service organizations, feeding, housing, raising funds, offering help, and so much more. And you do it because it is an outgrowth of your faith of sharing Christ with others. But I want to encourage you one more a step, one more step along the way. That it's not just about sharing with your hands. It's about sharing your stories with those who need Jesus Christ and what Jesus brings to each of us. Friends, we have something to share that most service organizations don't have. We have stories like mine where either we or someone else has stepped into a life of another to offer them the message of Jesus, to mentor them along in faith or to be the face of Jesus, the hands of Jesus, or with the love of Christ when otherwise they may never see or hear or experience Him ever. It's the mandate we have to take that good news, our good news, His good news, Christ's good news, and share it with others. And here's the point. There wasn't one person I mentioned that had to offer themselves to me. Let me say that again. There wasn't one person that I have mentioned, not one, that had to offer their stories and that relationship with me. Not one. They did it because they were undergirded by a faith in a God of transformation. It was a sacred covenant to them, and they seized the opportunities set before them. And I will guarantee you that without them, I would not be here. I shouldn't be here. 
but by God's grace, the courage of those I've listed and so many more are what made it happen. What I described in each of these cases was the church come alive and not one of them was shared in a sanctuary. Not one of them, the stories, were shared within the confines of a building. Not one. But it's the church. It's the church anyway. It is our primary task. Yep, it means daring greatly. And maybe most importantly, it means being courageous. Offering ourselves to, for, and with others who will then have the opportunity to pass it on for decades and millennia to come. The ripple effect of the pebble in the calm water that spreads and spreads and never has an end. Because when we've been here 10,000 years, why don't we sing that last verse? I am a desperate introvert and that may surprise you but I am every Sunday morning it just takes an enormous amount of energy to stand before you to speak and the reason that I often wear a robe and I know Doreen loves it when I wear my robe and I will again I realize that the purpose of that robe is for Brad to disappear into the background and for Christ to come forward It is an incredibly overwhelming, humbling responsibility. I will never take it lightly, but I meant what I said. It is an honor, an honor to serve with you in ministry. It's an honor that I don't deserve, but I will take it up for as long as I can with you. I'm so humbled by what I see you doing around the world, around the country, around the community, and even around our neighborhoods. Let's continue in that work and share our stories. Amen?